On February 6, 1917, the Swiss theologian Karl Barth delivered a lecture in Lutzville, Switzerland, that he called The New World in the Bible, which when it was published in 1924, he added the word strange to the title. The strange new world in the Bible. Now, without a doubt, the Bible appears strange to us for a number of reasons. It includes stories that shock us and violate our modern sensibilities. It seems to honor the people who mess up the most and push aside the ones who have credibility and standing. One day in the Bible, we're reading details about civil laws for an ancient nation, and then the next day we hear sermons from strange men dressed like beggars and spoke in riddles. What to make of all this? In Bart's lecture, delivered to mainly to people like we are, he wanted to make the point that the world of the Bible seems strange to us, not because God is strange, or because the Bible is necessarily strange, but rather, the Bible seems strange to us because when we open it up, we're always looking for the wrong sorts of things. What is it you're looking for? Bart is asking us. Some people, Bart says, are looking for history or historical facts, others for religious ideas, and many, many for moral lessons. Some might even open the Bible to discover something about God, but Bart contends that all these motives are wrong-headed even the one about learning something about God. He's especially critical of those who look in the Bible chiefly to find those clever ways to take care of their problems or get a leg up in life. Want to have a great marriage? Follow these five foolproof biblical principles. Want to learn what it really means to be a man or a woman? Come to our Bible study as we look at the lives of Esther and David, or something like that. You'll be disappointed with David. <laughs> you get the point. Bart's complaint mirrors almost exactly the dominant preoccupations of our contemporary church. We tend to open the Bible in the hope that it will simply improve the lives we already have that it will function like an ancient version of a Brene Brown podcast. As good as those are, I hope I didn't offend you. What we really want, what we're really after, is a therapeutic God. Instead, Bart tells us, and he said this his entire life, opening the Bible is a revolutionary act that resists the impulse towards self-help and opens us up to an encounter, an encounter with the living God. It's not about an informational manual about God. The Bible is a window through which the living and active God confronts us, encounters us, encounters us takes the formless mess of our lives and shapes it into something brand new. 
And rather than getting something out of him, out of God, he gets what he wants out of us. See? Now that's revolutionary. That is a revolution that we would come to the church and open this book for no other reason than for God to look us in the eye and allow Him to turn our lives upside down. I love how young people want to change the world. Don't you? I mean, so many of our movements, so many of the changes in our world throughout history have come from young people. They want to be countercultural. They gravitate to powerful causes. Young people, do you really want to change the world? You really want to be countercultural? Well, I would tell you, go to church. Pray to someone you can't see. Open an ancient book because you believe that the same God who created Saturn will speak to you. Now that's countercultural. He will move into your neighborhood. He will share his life with you in such a way that you'll find yourself doing and saying things that don't sound anything like your teachers or your friends or the talking heads on television. That's a revolution. There are a lot of young people who are currently deconstructing their faith. I've mentioned this to you before. And I'm not really talking about the 20 and 30-somethings who have had bad experiences in the church or the ones who were loosely connected to Jesus. The group I have in mind are the young people who grew up in healthy families, relatively. Attended church from a young age. They went to camp every summer. Maybe they went to a Christian school. They played in a student ministry band. They interned with the director of that ministry. And on and on and on, they were locked in. And they leave home and they go to university and all of a sudden, none of what they imbibed during those years seemed to be relevant at all. And they left it. And sometimes they even get angry about it, thinking that their parents and this church business was pushing Jesus down their throats so they missed out on real living and they get offended and even repulsed by Christianity. You know people like this. I do. I mean, maybe you're one of them. Why does that happen? There are lots of reasons. There are always multiple reasons. There's not one. But my suspicion is that at least part of the issue is that they spent most of those years, particularly the teen years, talking about how Jesus is a guru to help with your anxiety, or to get you funding for college, or to find you the best career possible, the one that fits you. I think they go to small groups talking about Three steps from the Bible about how to not get angry at your parents. You know? Don't talk back. Say a silent prayer from a friend. Say a silent prayer from a friend. I mean, maybe. 
maybe you need to take action like that sometimes. Maybe that helps. But somewhere along the way, it occurs to those very bright young people that they can get all of the same advice from a decent therapist or a good guidance counselor. <coughs> Does the Bible have anything to say about that stuff? Yeah, a little bit. Not nearly as much as we have to say about it, mind you, but some. But it's a drop in the ocean compared to what John the Baptist or St. John the Evangelist want us to hear. They yell at us about it. In our Gospel reading, we heard Jesus ask those would-be disciples, what is it you're looking for? What do you want? When you open the Bible, when you sit here, what do you want? It's a relevant question for us too, isn't it? What is it that we're looking for? What do we want? These are the first words we hear from John's Gospel. Or from Jesus in John's Gospel, rather. And it's a brilliant way of setting the stage for what follows in the book. John is taking us on a journey with Jesus where we'll hear teaching that no one in the history of humanity has ever said. It will be surprising, shocking. Some of it will be comforting and hopeful. All of it will draw a line in the sand. Like, for example, one of my favorite texts in all the Bible, John 6. Jesus says, I am the bread of heaven, and the bread is my flesh and blood, and unless you eat my flesh and blood, you don't have eternal life. Can you imagine listening to that sermon that day? Well, now that's just ridiculous, right? And John says, many of his disciples stopped following him that day. I am not surprised. What would we have done? I wonder what they had been looking for when they came to see Jesus that day. And he talked about cannibalism, or at least it seemed that way. In the same chapter, Jesus told the people that they were coming to him, not because of any great spiritual motive on their part. He said, you're coming to me simply because I gave you a free meal, and you're hungry again, and you just want to fill up your bellies. He had made their lives a little bit better, a bit more comfortable. So they came looking for more of that. And Jesus told them, you're pursuing food that spoils. You're obsessed with the stuff that will disappear. And the one thing that you need is sitting right in front of you. The one thing you need more than any of all that other stuff that is pressing in on you is right here. The Son of God, the Son of Man, Jesus of Nazareth. John says that God placed his seal of approval on him, on Jesus, and you're looking right past him in the hope that you'll get a free lunch. 
truth then, way back then. Certainly not for us. John the Baptist was certainly not looking for a free lunch. What a fascinating man. In some ways, he was the nutty professor. You know the type, right? Dressed strangely, ate weird food, probably smelled. I'm sure he smelled very badly. He was misunderstood and mocked by the establishment, the elite. But he had a following, quite a following. He had thousands who would leave the cities and villages to come here, and, and he had his own disciples too. The ones who wandered around the country with him, hoping that his preaching and his baptizing would bring in the kingdom of God. I mean, surely they thought someone who's so revolutionary would be able to stir up the crowds and God would overthrow Rome, his enemies, once again. I mean, maybe John could have done that. The Baptist was in his 30s, his mid-30s. He was in his prime. Hundreds of people followed him. He was a celebrity pastor, if there ever was one. Perhaps he could have put together a good plan to overthrow Rome and reestablish the kingdom of David and Saul. That would have been great. But rather than drawing more people to himself, he was singularly focused on the arrival of the Messiah of God, the Savior, the hope of the world. And that's all he could talk about. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, it's recorded twice for us in this brief vignette. I wasn't sure if this was the right guy, John said. That's what that phrase means that we read, I didn't know him. I wasn't sure if this was the right guy. I mean, he's my cousin, you know, Aunt Mary's son. But when the Spirit came down on him in the Jordan and it stayed with him, the Baptist says, then I knew. So now, everybody, look at him. Go follow him. Remarkable, isn't it? The change that was happening because of John the Baptist's ministry, the following that he had gained, and yet he turns and says, there's your hope of the world right over there. Go follow him. And they did. Two of his disciples who were standing with him. It's an interesting phrase. I take it to mean they might have even been his inner circle. Andrew, probably John the Evangelist, although he's not named. They leave the Baptist and follow Jesus. And then that's when it happens. Jesus wheels around and asks them, what do you want? If you've ever had the opportunity to do any training to be a counselor or a therapist, or maybe you've spoken to a counselor or a therapist, or maybe a coach, executive coach, leadership coach, somebody like that, you know that those people are trained to ask good questions. You want to guess what one of the key fundamental questions is that they are taught to ask their clients? What do you want? Now, when I first heard that, I was training to, to become a, a coach. When I first heard that, I thought, okay, now how much am I paying you to tell me 
to ask somebody, what do you want? Really? But when I ask that question, do you know what happens? Long pauses. Silence. You know why? Because that is a question that eludes us at times. We don't know what we really want. We know we want something. We know we are looking. We know we're searching. But we're not sure what will get us what we want. The other reason there's a long pause is because every client intuitively knows that what they really want, down deep in their core, will determine the next steps that they take. That course of action. Which may mean going a different direction in life. And Jesus asks his disciples, as he asks us, what do you want? What are you looking for? I'm struck by how the two disciples answered, yet didn't really answer the question. Rabbi, let's see, what do you want? Rabbi, uh, where are you staying? <laughs> I mean, they clearly didn't really know what they wanted because they couldn't give a direct answer to Jesus' question. And yet... Their question indicates that maybe deep down they did know what they wanted. Here's a fascinating thing about John's Gospel. There are always layers to meaning in John's Gospel. You'll read something, just think, when you read something in this Gospel and it sounds a little strange, just think, oh, he's trying to tell us multiple things here. There are layers. And John doesn't always peel the onion back for us. He sort of lets us figure it out. And I think this is one of those times. So they said, Rabbi, teacher. That's their way of saying, hey, we want to learn from you. I don't know how they knew he was a teacher, because Jesus was yet to do any teaching or preaching. But addressing him as Rabbi was an indication that they were ready to sit at his feet, like Mary did when Martha was busy preparing the meal. And then they asked that odd question, where are you staying? Now when I ask someone that question, it's to help me decide a restaurant location that's convenient for both of us. But remember, John's Gospel is layered with meaning. So there's likely to be something else at play here that we wouldn't first notice. And here it is, at least part of it. The word they use for stay is translated elsewhere in the gospel as abiding or abide. Abide in me as I abide in you, Christ will say later in John. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide, stay, live. Dwell, tabernacle in my love. They don't even realize what they're asking, and they will, over the next few years, come to see how significant the first question that they ask Jesus really is. But it is a cry from their heart, I believe. And the cry will grow louder and more pronounced 
as the years go by. And what they're saying is, Jesus of Nazareth is your home with God. And if so, may we go there too. I love how Jesus responds to the question. Perfect. Perfect response for people who are already following him and those who aren't quite there yet. It's the best response for someone who doesn't even get the full significance of their own question. For the person who doesn't really know what they want or which direction they need to turn. You've been there? It's the answer to the heart that longs for something it can't quite articulate. Come and see. Walk with me. Listen carefully to what I say, and if you do, you will hear the voice of God. Follow my path, Jesus says, and it will lead you to a home where you can abide that you can't begin to imagine. Come and see my life, and that life will become your life. So instead of a better life, I'll give you a new life. Don't you want that? That's what we're made for. The journalist, author, and podcaster Malcolm Gladwell grew up in Canada in a very conservative Mennonite family. By the way, don't mistake Mennonites for the Amish. They're different. Mennonites trace their roots to Menno Simmons, who lived during and participated in the Protestant Reformation. Gladwell was raised to believe in all the core tenets of the faith that most of us in this room would believe in. God became flesh in Jesus, salvation by faith through grace, or by grace through faith, rather, etc. But somewhere along the line, he began looking for something else. He was intrigued by sociology, politics, historical movements, and their impact on our modern world. He still is intrigued by all of that. But Gladwell pursued his career with unusual vigor. And throughout all of it, he's just sort of left church and Jesus behind. For one of his books, David and Goliath, he interviewed a Mennonite couple whose teenage daughter had been murdered. You know about this story? At a press conference after his daughter's body was found, the father said this, quote, We would like to know who the person or persons are of the ones who murdered her. So we could share, hopefully, a love that seems to be missing in these people's lives. And Gladwell was simply astonished. And he wondered, how could he say that? Where did this company find, this couple, find the strength to say what they said? about love and forgiveness. Before he met that couple, Gladwell had been researching stories about strength and power turning up in unusual ways, like 
dyslexic children who became successful entrepreneurs or children who'd grown up in difficult neighborhoods and then they would grow to be world leaders, people like that. But it was in talking to this Mennonite couple that Gladwell realized what he was personally looking for. Here's what he said. I was interested in the weapons of the Spirit, the peculiar and inexplicable power that comes from within. And so that put him on a journey. And in many interviews since then, Gladwell said he's in the process of rediscovering his faith. And if you listen to his podcast, there's more and more and more talk about faith as the episodes go by. It's been a process. A process of coming to see that he'd been missing something. That there was, in his words, something incredibly powerful and beautiful in that faith that he grew up with that he was missing. He realized how much that was what he really wanted. Now, isn't that remarkable? Here's a guy who has money and power and influence and notoriety and friends all over the world. He can live in a high-rise apartment in Manhattan or on his estate in Montecito, California. He can go anywhere. He can do anything. He has no worries. Everything in life that Gladwell had been looking for, he now possesses, except the one thing his heart really wants and needs. Now, what are we looking for? What do we want? Jesus says to us, come and see. If it's been years of wandering or only a few weeks, if you know what you want or if you're struggling to articulate it, if you're ready to admit your failures or if you're just now becoming self-aware, Jesus is the beginning, middle, and end of what our souls really long for. And he's okay if it will take a while for us to figure it all out. Come and listen. Come and abide. Come and see. Thanks be to God. Amen.